The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. Anyways, let's talk about this market here because we do have a little bit of red on the screen. How much of this is really the market's kind of bracing for all the Fed speak that we're going to get today? I think it's like... A, just a slew of Fed speakers. I don't even remember what the count is, but it's like Williams, Bostic, Cook, Neil Kashkari. It's all today. Didn't I think it's too much. It's a lot. Well, I would agree with you. I think they. I think transparency is actually a bad idea. I Bring back Alan I, Greenspan. I think. I think that they try so hard to eliminate the it, the idea of any risk and risk analytics in your decision making when you, yeah. when you when you make an investment or trade. I think it's a very bad thing. I think it actually is. Functionally, we have so shortened the time frame on analysis, it's actually quite unhealthy in many ways. So the markets are hunting for this dovishness, the signals out there. Uh, yeah. Is anybody pushing? Powell didn't sound like he's pushing back. Well, yesterday, Bostic, Raphael, I think, came out and said, you know, look, I think I'm pushing up, or I may need to push up where I think my peak rate is. Um, Mr. Kashkari was pretty clear yesterday that he said 540 is where he thinks we're going. Um, you know, I suspect it's going to be very hard from the, the litany of other members of the FOMC to have much more of an impact um, at, right now, given um, what Powell said yesterday. I would have, you know, or, and last week. I was a little shocked last week. Look, as, as a general matter, I think the biggest problem they have is, liquid, is too much liquidity. And every time they allow the stock market, which they seem to ignore in the definition of liquidity, to, to go rallying a lot, they're throwing more liquidity into a market. It's putting a little bit of, uh, you know, of, of oil into a fire, and it raises the risk that they have to do more, and it, it impedes, with their, impedes their efforts to try and achieve a lower rate of inflation in a short period of time. And what I think people also, just as a, a general matter, miss, to my, in my perspective, it's not just getting to 2%. It's getting to a stable, ambient 2% level. So, you know, that's, to me, the bigger problem. I don't know how fast they'll get to 2%. I mean, I think Powell said it yesterday. That they're hoping it'll be sometime next year. Uh, but, you know, you could hit 2% in a day and then find out six weeks later you're at 6%. That's not what he wants. And so I think the, the, the liquidity issues and constraints that the, that the equity market seems to um, apply or a problem for them. Well, I'm still wondering, though, how much more we really even need to hear from the Fed. Look, I asked Alan Blinder, uh, the former vice chair under Alan Greenspan, about this yesterday. Is the Fed over-communicating? He said, look, they're not over-communicating at all. But how much of this do we do the markets really need to hear when the message is repeatedly the same? We don't know what the end terminal rate is. We don't know how much we need to hike. We're data dependent. How much value are you really getting 
from from that? Me, I think very little. I think the biggest question again. Let's take a different issue. It's not just what the terminal rate is. Um, I think the market and and if you look at the forward curve in the euro dollar futures, it's been clear for a while. The market just thinks we're going to hit a peak and then go right back down, right? I think the fo you know the forward LIBOR rates are three and a half or so, not very far out, and and I think that seems to be a big mistake. The only thing to for, first of all look at how well the economy is still performing functionally. Certainly, when you look at employment, even with ha the Fed having raised rates four percentage points, give or take four and a half percentage points in seven months, why does anyone think that if we're going to slowly glide into a trajectory towards lower inflation, but we're still at functionally near full employment, that the Fed has to do anything but just stay where they are for a very very long time? All right, what's what's the lag then? I mean, how you know what what are you going to tell Jerome Powell? Well, first off, why do you assume there's a lag necessarily? Oh, I mean, right. look, I, I've been I've been on the show with or on Bloomberg now almost twenty years, and mm -hmm. we I've been suggesting for actually this goes back to the late nineties that zero interest rates are actually antithetical to growth and to very to good economic and financial decision making and that in an ambient level of interest rates say between two and a half and five percent is actually a very healthy environment and this economy will perform just fine at that level once you've gone through the transition of, of go leaving ultra low behind you and I think what you're seeing in many ways is exactly that there are parts of the economy that are responding to the, the, to the upward mo movement in rates. But even now, you're already seeing we're two percentage points lower in mortgages, and the mortgage market's coming back to life. Yeah. Is it, so is, is it working here? I mean, in the last about 30 seconds that we have, oh. is, is the Fed's tightening policy, are we seeing effects of it already, or are we still have to wait about a you, year you've, so? seen, you've seen some effects on mm -hmm. certain areas of economy, and you've certainly seen some effect on prices, although again, some of that is is as much due to the year-on-year -year comparisons to very, very high rate levels. But what the longer-term effects are, we don't know yet. But I wouldn't rush to judgment that that a, a three and a half to four percent or or four and a half percent interest rate level is going to be catastrophic, which everyone seems to be working on. I'm just now reading his bio: the University of Cambridge, <laughs> Department of Applied Mathematics and Theoretical Physics. Yes. Fusion, how far off? <laughs> well, fusion exists already in terms of... Well, a, a, I mean, fusion you're talking about an energy a, a, source you're, well, here you're on the talking planet about, Earth. Well, on the planet Earth, it's, it's, I would bet it's 20 to 40 years off. The, the, the mechanisms for con containing the plasma are a problem, but it's the first time they've actually gotten more energy out and in, and as soon as they get it working, of course, that's a tremendous step for humanity, although I don't think, I don't think the president's going to be able to complain about too much profitability for oil. The amount, the <laughs> amount of uh, previous nuclear fusion, fission, whatever people that are now in the financial sector is <laughs> hilarious. Anyways, yes. Neil Grossman, former CIO with TKNG Capital. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers, and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights, and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.
the S&P 500 down four tenths of 1%. Dow down 51 points. NASDAQ only down half a percent, which that's like not the volatility that we're used to in the last year. What do you think? Um, do you pay attention to the VIX? I know you're going to make See, a Tom so Kane that's my point. mention. 1867 right now. Now, we remember back when it was 70s, 80s? Yeah, like it was. A, I think in peak COVID, it hit 83. That was the highest volatility. But look, you were getting eight, like seven, eight percent swings in either direction. Um, but you know, that's a really good question to ask our next guest. Uh, Michael Cugino joins us, president and portfolio manager of the permanent portfolio family of funds. And he joins, of course, the program to talk about this market. Michael, thank you as always for joining. What do you do with the VIX right now? Sure. Good morning. Um, well, it's an indicator of volatility and concern or fear. But is it, um, is it an indicator of volatility, really? I think right he's now? saying it's just a, ignore it's it. A <laughs> it. Well, I mean, right now the, the number's low and there's a lack of volatility. So, yes, it, it is an, it, it's an indicator at the moment or a byproduct of a lack of volatility, as, as you guys mentioned. Um, you know, you're not seeing wide swings like you saw last year, at least right now. And uh, the market appears to be a little bit more calmer. Um, and, um, you know, we'll see what happens. It's a long year, but, but that's what you see right now. Okay, so a stupid question for you. What is in the driver's seat? Fed? Uh, Fed speak? Uh, earnings? What? I, I would say the primary driver is the Fed and probably a second concern with the earnings. Um, you know, I think that the, the Fed is, is story one and has been and, and will continue to be. And, you know, it was earlier this week as well. I, I think what you've had with the Fed is, the what you're hearing out of the Fed is consistent with the market's expectations, and and as a result, the market is okay, generally speaking, with um, Fed speak and where we're at and where we might be going. And so, you know, you've got kind of a quieter trade going on. Now, that could all be upended, you know, an hour from now with some new information, but, but for the moment of the last few days, that's what you've had. And uh, even this week with Powell's... Uh, uh, DC, you know, one-on-one Q and A yesterday. I mean, it, there were no surprises there. Um, earlier in the week, there were no surprises. Or last week's uh, meeting, there were no surprises. And so, as a result, the market is settling down to more on fundamentals and um, and you know maybe uh, selling off a little bit after the big run based on earnings, based on maybe a little too far, too fast. But but you know, stocks were very oversold coming out of December, so. That's why you haven't seen a big sell-off either. I mean, they've settled into some sort of valuation that makes sense given the Fed and everything else right now. I mean, we were always told, don't fight the Fed, but we're fighting the Fed. Why is there such a disconnect between the market pricing and uh, the Fed speak? I'm not so sure we're fighting the Fed. I mean, valuations have adjusted from December that some would argue they're a little, even I might argue they're a little higher than maybe they should be given the, the macro with potentially a slowing economy um, in terms of how far they came in January. Although you had such a strong jobs number last week that really I think was so strong it was a surprise. Um, and it remains to be seen whether there's some anomalies in there that will kick out in, in further months. But you know, honestly speaking, it's very difficult to have a recession with the job market so strong. And so what that's done, what that's done is that's kept the, the soft landing scenario 
very much alive, and, and the market is comfortable with that. So again, getting back to the first question, um, you know, think, think the, the, the market perceives things to be okay, um, and, and as a result, the volatility is a little muted. Well, does that mean that when it comes to the catalysts that then move the stock market on an intraday basis, you are then seeing more emphasis put on initial jobless claims, the payrolls report, as opposed to, say, the earnings picture? Um, well, I mean, everybody has expected the earnings estimates to come down. And and so far, the earnings, we're still, you know, in the middle of earnings season, so we don't really have the data on where they ended up. But that wouldn't be a surprise. Now, given the run in stocks, multiples have expanded during that time a little bit, which is a little bit interesting given the macro story of a possible slowdown. Um, but while we may have a slowdown, you're not seeing it in labor. And, and so, you know, if people are working and spending, then it's very hard to have a deep recession. And, and as long as that's true, now labor's a lagging indicator, so, you know, that could change. And, and then, you know, the labor just gets added to the other macro negatives, but at the moment that hasn't happened. And, and as a result, people feel like the economy, um, you know, soft landing, maybe shallow recession, et cetera, et cetera, and, and equities are okay with that for the moment. Um, I think the one risk factor there in that story, though, is that there was such a move in interest rates last year, and the Fed is tapering, but still, um, that move hasn't been fully factored in. It hasn't worked its way through the economy yet. And so it's possible that there's more negative and increasingly negative news to come out in the future as those interest rates work their way through and actually slow things down. We haven't seen that yet, but that's still a, a distinct possibility. Just back to earnings for a second. The, uh, is margin pressure going to go away anytime soon? Um, well, in theory, if inflation alleviates, that would decrease the pressure on margins um, and you know other cost factors. So, yeah, the answer is yes, maybe. Um, but uh, we don't know that either. I mean, inflation has been coming down. Uh, I personally don't think it's going to come down to the Fed's two percent. I think it's going to settle somewhere three, four, five percent when all is said and done. And then the question becomes: Well, you know, can the U.S. economy uh, grow? Re, you know, readjusting to an inflation rate at that level, at least where we are, you know, right now. So, you know, that's not the, the U.S. economy has grown with inflation at those levels. I mean, you can look to the 1980s for that, and you know, the inflation rate took. 10-plus years to come down from where it was in the early 80s, yet you had a good economic growth decade in the 1980s for the most part. So, so it can do that. And, you know, that may be where we're at. The other factor I think you have to consider with inflation that, again, we don't know the effects yet, but, uh, you know, we passed three-something trillion dollars in, in fiscal policy with the Inflation Reduction Act and the, the budget deal in late December. That money hasn't been spent. It hasn't cycled its way through the economy yet. Um, and so will that reduce the decline in inflation once that money starts to work its way through the economy? And, and so that would be a factor that would maybe mitigate the decline in inflation that we haven't seen. So you've got a lot of cross-currents right now going in both directions, and it remains to be seen where we settle. Right, and, so. but, but I think you know we're settling somewhere near, at least in the short term, where the Fed may be tapering and, and waiting, and that would be around that 5% number. Okay, so what's your investment thesis given all that? 
Well, we would be pretty diversified right now. Uh, under the theory, there's a lot of question marks and um, a lot of unknowns, and, and there really is. There's a lot of things we just can't answer at the moment. So we're, uh, we, we run a strategy that, that you know, invests in a variety of different non-correlated asset classes, so precious metals, real estate, U.S. and non-U.S. equities, and U.S. and non-U.S. fixed income. And, and we would add a, advocate a strategy that, that does that. Um, we think with inflation risk, with the uncertainty factor, um, and the amount of liquidity that's been created over the last, you know, several years, uh, a healthy investment in gold would make sense, especially if the Fed is, is slowing down and stopping or maybe cutting at some point in the future. Silver as well. Um, equities, we're not negative on them, but we're, we're sensitive to valuation. We would recommend a variety of stocks and different asset classes so that you're not wedded to any one sector. Um, and then on the fixed income side, uh, well, lengthening duration probably makes sense at some point. We're not quite there yet, so we would advocate high quality and short duration fixed income, especially on the uh, on the corporate side. And we've found some opportunities in you know pretty short term uh, investment grade paper, um, and then a healthy dose of hard assets like real estate, commodities, or the equities in those businesses. Which right. we think on the commodity side, there's a there's a longer cycle at play in that space, energy, you know, commodity metals, those okay. sorts of things, um, and real estate as a hedge and, and also potentially, right. uh, you know, rising uh, rentals and all that stuff. Certainly something we're going to keep our eye on. Brent Crude, of course, at 83 as we speak. Michael Cugino over at uh, Por- President Portfolio Manager, excuse me, of the Permanent Portfolio Family of Funds. We thank you as always. A lot of uncertainty around the inflation outlook, he says. Uh, if the situation changes, big surprise. The central bank could move faster than uh, 25 basis point uh, pace. Uh, he also said that it's a reasonable view. Uh, most officials forecast rates uh, in the range of five and uh, five and a quarter percent. That's what he's calling a reasonable view at this point. Thank you for rescuing me. I appreciate that. You're welcome. Well, let's ask if it is a reasonable view to someone who has a lot more experience than either one of us on on this front. Danielle DiMartino Booth joins us. She's the CEO and chief strategist of Quill Intelligence. I believe worked for the former Dallas Fed as well. So she has the in real what capacity, Danielle? Inside knowledge. Um, I was I was kind of uh, Richard Fisher's senior advisor on all things markets. At the intersection of macroeconomic data, so I was uh, I, I was a role that no longer exists at the Dallas Fed. <laughs> it's they eliminated the position well, after you left. Once, yeah, clearly. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. they're yeah, like yeah. we can't replace it. End of story. Like we're just giving up. Um, but it was pretty fascinating throughout the crisis, especially drawing parallels between now and then, when Bernanke wanted to foment certainty, and Powell and his closest confidants, Waller, Williams. They want to foment uncertainty, so they don't want to. They don't want for markets to lock anything in, and I think that that's what they're having such a difficult time communicating because that's not how we view the Fed. It's not how we've been trained for forty years to view communications from the Fed. Well, I mean, we didn't get much communication at all when we had uh, individuals like we couldn't understand it when we had Greenspan. I mean, what? Why is there a drive toward uncertainty at this point? I think they really do want to keep the the window open to be higher for longer. And the, again, the only thing we've ever known is lower for longer. But I think they're 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 desperately trying to say 
we want to maintain rates at a high level. That gives them license to continue conducting quantitative tightening, quote unquote, in the background, what nobody in the media ever asks him about and what he doesn't really talk about very much. Uh, you know, he was asked about mortgage-backed securities. Would you ever consider selling them? Obviously, for a big loss in this kind of a high interest rate environment, the Fed purchased them at two, two and a half percent coupons, and now mortgage rates are north of six percent. Um, you know, when he was asked directly, he said, "You know, it's not really something that we're talking about right now." Next, more uncertainty, and I think that I think that that's his goal: uncertainty. Yeah, it's interesting you bring that up with the, the tightening because I just as an aside, Europe, I mean, that's the big story, I think, for 2023 or, or potentially could be with, uh, with the sovereign bond market. Why is it not, um, uh, as we do the, the unwind here, why is that not a focus? You know, I, I think he has tried so hard, and I, I say he because I really do feel like the Federal Reserve is a community of speakers leaders but at the end of the day we really are i mean yesterday was like oh my gosh the super bowl starting at 12:30 i mean the whole world shut down waiting to hear powell <laughs> um so he really is this this one person mechanism and yet you know you don't get that same type of focus when you're talking about europe and tightening potentially faster than the united states none of that really matters if the fed doesn't pause or pivot if they really keep going other central banks are going to have an effect on global liquidity and the, and the price of money. But if we maintain high rates and don't go in a different direction, if we're not the leader, if we don't follow the Bank of Canada in pausing, then it's all irrelevant. Uh, you know, as, as Michael Burry said on Oblast on, on yesterday uh, on Bloomberg, it, it, it would be a paradigm shift. Paradigm shift. Some heavy words from Michael Burry. We don't listen to other shows. Just yeah, it's own. just Bloomberg Markets, and John and I listen to it on repeat, and that is all. <laughs> just kidding. Uh, Danielle, I am getting a, a question, IB, to hear into me. I want to talk to you about the divergence you're starting to see in the Federal Reserve. It feels like, whereas there was this consensus, especially in the back half of 2022, where it was just be as hawkish as possible until we start to see some cracks in inflation, that seems to start diverging now. We have Neil Kashkari on the most hawkish end, um, others perhaps uh, walking back some of the Fed's comments from last Wednesday. To what extent is that by design? To what extent is that divergence worth paying attention to? So I think, I think really to the extent that, that, that Chair Powell is guiding other speakers' narratives, it's important. And when you are inside the Fed, I mean, wandering off the reservation with a crazy view is is looked down upon. (laughs) You you cannot do that. So, I mean, you bring up the the best example of all, Neil Kashkari, whose narrative is completely flipped. We used to think he was the biggest dove in the world. And now he's saying, no, maybe 5.4%. Maybe we're going to go higher. I don't think that 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 type of communication is is not articulated and condoned at the very top of the Fed. Okay, with your background and experience, what should they be doing at this point? Look, I think what few people are talking about, and hats off to Rubenstein for bringing it up, it's, it's the debt ceiling. And it was yesterday, it was Powell saying, I'm not stepping in and doing anything. Good luck. I'll see you on the other side. That's, I mean, people are not talking about this ticking clock in the background and the parallels to 2011, which was really a bad time for markets, 
And we've already had two rating agencies come out and say, if this really does go down to the wire, then we are going to be potentially flirting with another downgrade of the sovereign debt of the United States. People just are not, they don't know where to, they don't know where to couch it. They don't know where to put it. And so I think that 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 is the thing that so few are talking about is that we could have a sequel of what markets look like in 2011. And that would not be a good thing. Was that really his remit? I mean, he's monetary, not fiscal. Or it's going to bleed. It, it, I got look at 20 seconds, of course, I asked no, the question. No, no, it, 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 but, but there are ways for monetary to come to the rescue of fiscal. And yesterday Powell said, not on my watch. That's your, that's your takeaway. All right. All right. Danielle DiMartino Booth, uh, CEO and Chief Strategist over at Quill Intelligence. We thank you, as always, on a crucial day, of course, where we're going to get a lot of Fed speakers. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum, powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers, and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights, and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. CVS shares higher, though, uh, in the day, up about 4% on the session. Um, there's some M&A news here. There's also some earnings news. We're going to bring in our very own Jonathan Palmer, senior industry analyst with Bloomberg Intelligence. What do you want to start with first, the earnings or the acquisition? What's bigger for you? Oh, absolutely the acquisition. Okay. I mean, the earnings came in and kind of as expected a little bit stronger. But the real story here is this deal for Oak Street. Uh, health, which has been rumored and bantered around by Bloomberg News and the Wall Street Journal for the last couple of months, and and really comes on the back of some other big plays here in the health. What, what is space. Oak Street? I've never heard of them, or maybe I should have, but no, you probably haven't heard of them. I mean, they're uh, a Medicare Advantage platform that they they service the Medicare Advantage uh, customer base. They've only been around for about a decade. They have centers in 21 states where they they manage these patients. It's only. I think 155,000 as of the end of last year, but it's really a different kind of new age primary care platform. And primary care is kind of all the rage in the healthcare services business. We have Amazon buying One Medical. We've got CVS with Oak Street. There's been some rumors about some of the other newer platforms um, potentially getting acquired as well. So everybody wants to own this primary care space. Uh, the one I forgot to mention was your Walgreens owning Village MD. So the move in pharmacy and, and healthcare services in general is to just make the umbrella bigger and, and capture more of those patient workflows, you know, in their enterprise. And primary care is the kind of the next battleground. Does um, anybody from Justice or the FTC say, hold on, wait a second? Well, interesting you say that because the FTC is going to be examining the uh, Amazon One Medical, and I, I wouldn't be surprised, you know, given that that they also look at this. Uh, Oak Street and a CVS deal as well. I mean, the reality is, you know, for me as a healthcare analyst, I don't necessarily see any conflicts of interest from a from a pure antitrust perspective for Amazon and and One Medical. I mean, Amazon, outside of owning you know some pharmacy assets, doesn't really deliver healthcare, so it's kind of hard to see where the the conflict is. You know, CVS with three hundred billion in revenue, you know, touching basically, you know, the majority of. Uh, pressure points in the healthcare system, you know, maybe there's an issue there. But again, they don't own a lot of primary care assets now outside of Minute Clinics, which is a very different beast than primary care. What does that then mean for 
I mean, you mentioned the Amazon kind of trying to get in. I remember a while back, I think there was some sort of partnership between Amazon. I want to say, was it Berkshire Hathaway and uh, JP Morgan, Morgan, right? Um, Do you start to see or are we anticipating more of those larger non-traditional health players to enter the space? My view is that, you know, somebody famously said healthcare is very hard. And, you know, the the non-traditional players have been trying to get into healthcare for years. I think Amazon's the furthest along, and very frankly, I would say they're, at the end of the day, nowhere in the grand scheme of things. I mean, mm-hmm. they do have their pharmacy. They they started a thing called Amazon Clinic, which they were offering to employers, and then they quickly shuttered it. We'll see what happens with One Medical. Um, you know, again, One Medical is not a very big player in the grand scheme of things either. And you have the Googles and the Microsofts and, and Facebooks maybe hunting around the margin, but none of them have really stepped into the delivery of care in a meaningful way. So I don't see non-traditional players as being a huge threat. It's the incumbents like CVS, like Walgreens, like United Health, who are really the ones who are, are changing the healthcare system in the U.S. as we know it. Uh, this is a potentially stupid question, as all of my questions are. Do they eventually take over my local doctor's office? Well, yeah, I, I think they do. I mean, uh, I, I live in northern New Jersey, and um, the big regional player in, in that space is a, a company called uh, Summit, and Village MD just just bought that. Uh, so slowly but surely, the practices and the regional practices are getting rolled up into these bigger organizations. I don't think it happens overnight, um, but it is a trend that we're seeing happen across the country. And I just wonder how that impacts uh, the health care that you get. I mean, I'd rather deal with my individual doctor who has his own practice rather than a giant conglomerate of, you know, owned by whomever. No, it's a, it's a fair statement. I think that's why there's a lot of skepticism, you know, among practitioners and, and people like myself. I mean, I don't even know that the economics, you know, from the small business perspective, yeah. even works for individual practitioners anymore. Well, that's, that's one of the problems. I mean, we have seen this trend where there's been consolidation among providers. That's why they've moved to some of these regional platforms and consolidated themselves into bigger practices, which are now being scooped up uh, by bigger companies. I mean, the, the Amazons, or the One Medicals and Amazons and United Health and CVSs of the world will tell you that, you know, when they're looking at, at the long term, that they're going to provide, you know, the best uh, clinical outcomes at the lowest costs. I think the proof needs to be seen in the pudding to, to know that that's actually going to happen. I mean, I personally, I mean, I cover healthcare. I use everything. I use One Medical, Walgreens, CVS, Rite Aid. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't know that I have a great experience across any of them. <laughs> yeah. So when I sit there and think about my primary care now being folded into one of these organizations, I wonder what the, the future state looks like. And I, I think that needs to be proven out uh, across the, the space. So that's more on the acquisition front. We have about a minute left, so I'm going to put you on the spot. Let's talk to us, talk to us about the earnings here um, and what really stands out to you there. Yeah, so they, they beat on revenue. They beat a little bit on EPS. Um, the retail portion of their business was a little stronger because cold and flu has come back. Um, the PBM, which is their Caremark business, continues to hum along. John mentioned specialty. That's, a, that's always been a big driver of that business. And the benefits business, too, is, is humming along as well. There's not really any sea changes in, in the core of CVS. I mean, the most exciting thing is that they've had this... Uh, strategy of wanting to acquire primary care and they've been talking about it for a year plus now and and now it's finally come to fruition so we'll see how that shakes out but um you know by all accounts the the market's positive on this deal 
Do they make any money selling milk and, you know, goodies and stuff like that at the front of the store? Sure, they they still do. But, you know, a lot of that has been impacted by uh, online, uh, you know, whether it's Amazon or Walmart. You know, the the driver of the pharmacy business used to be that you had the pharmacy in back and you had to walk through all the aisles and you'd you'd pay, you know, over 30 percent plus for the items that you need. But you were willing to pay that for a convenience factor. That's slowly shifting. Okay, that's so. where I get the Valentine gifts. <laughs> CBS, the candy. I mean, aisle. it's it's a pretty great selection. Um, Jonathan Palmer uh, of Bloomberg Intelligence, we thank you as always covering the healthcare space. I have a bond market question before you, you introduce the guest. Okay. Do you buy for yield, or you're buying for the price depreciation? Um, I believe. <clears throat> excuse me. I believe it depends on investment grade versus high yield. The way I was taught. Okay. Um, but I believe you're buying for the spread change. Anyways, we should ask uh, Brian Whalen, co-chief investment officer and generalist portfolio manager with TCW Investment. He uh, invest management, excuse me. He does join us on the phone uh, for his monthly segment on the latest fixed income market moves. Uh, let's start there, Brian. Answer yeah. John's question. Yeah, Great do you question. purchase? Yeah, I'll, I'll ask. Uh, do you purchase for a yield appreciation or the price appreciation? Because it was the spread. They travel in opposite directions, right? I, I think the answer is yes <laughs> to all yes. of the above. <laughs> you answer for all that and more. I think you 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 buy it depending on your time horizon. You buy it for the yield, which right now looks better than it has in, in a long, long time. You know, five percent. Um, if you have an opinion on the economy and credit spreads, you buy it for the total return, which could be the, the price impact up or down, depending upon which way you know, spreads and interest rates go. And then the third reason you didn't, manage, uh, or didn't mention, excuse me, you can buy it for what it does in your portfolio. You know, it obviously, it provides some diversification. Uh, maybe not last year. Nothing provided diversification last year. But typically, uh, and certainly at a, at a yield of about 5%, you know, it can offer some diversification and hedging against other pieces of your portfolio like equities or alternatives or emerging markets. Let's go a little bit more nerdy, if we shall. Yeah. Because I'm You got confused. the right person. Keep going. I'm, I'm psyched. <laughs> because I'm really... I'm, I'm pretty, I am, yes, you have the I right am person. genuinely <laughs> confused when it comes to the bond market. Look, they're tied, it's tied at the hip of the Federal Reserve. No brainer there. Uh, there are cuts priced in. No brainer there. But you're looking at a 10-year yield that's really just trading in a range and it has been for the last few months so why should we care about the bond market right now oh it drives it drives everything you, i don't think the equity people like to admit that but that's that's the truth yeah careful. i mean you know it, it, it's it's, it's <laughs> we call it the smart money right? don't we the smart <laughs> john i'm glad you said that i'm glad but i can't say i disagree i mean it's 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 behind You're everything you're supposed you know, to be it's... neutral john you can't take the side of the bond people. Oh my gosh! I'm, I'm just saying Continue. what's said. So. It's your cost of borrowing. You know, it's it's you know it's, it's your cost of capital. It impacts currency markets. I mean, it has it ram has ramifications throughout uh, the global economy. So you're supposed to focus on it. Yeah, I mean, it's been amazing. And given how volatile last year was, you know, the ten year, um, you know, the five, ten, and the thirty years kind of all kind of settled into a range here and. You know, since the employment report last Friday, we've had a little bit of a sell-off. But, um, you know, honestly, it feels incredibly, um, I'll say, almost kind of seamless um, uh, in terms of the adjustment the market just made. You know, it saw a very strong employment on Friday. It basically then just said, okay, you know what, 5% is not going to be the upper bound. It's going to be 5 quarter percent But once we get there, the Fed's going to stay on hold for most of the year. 
And then just like we've thought for months now, by the end of the year, they're going to make a couple cuts. And by the end of 2024, you know, we're, you know, we're, they're going to make at least a hundred more cuts. Uh, and so it's been amazing just how strong that number was. Uh, what I'd say is a fairly seamless adjustment, both in the bond market as well as, you know, every other market. But that feels like a fairly consensus take there, which then brings me back to my original question. How do you even trade it then? Is that why we're seeing this trading range for the 10-year, but you're also seeing it in the two-year as well? Is it because those cuts are so strongly priced in that it's essentially creating a cap? Yeah, you know, I'd say the uh, this whole market reeks of impatience. You know, it's year-to-date, it's got kind of like a, a FOMO rally, meaning, you know, I think, you know, it just feels like investors want to look around and say, all right, you know, we're, we're 10 months into a tightening cycle and the economy hasn't rolled over, you know, and unemployment is still low. It, it must be a soft landing. There isn't going to be a recession and therefore I'm going to run out and buy risk. And, you know, I think we kind of scratch our heads a little bit and say, you know what, like, you know, the term long and variable, it didn't come out of nowhere. It's there for a reason. And, and typically, typically, 10 months into a monetary tightening cycle, you don't have a recession yet. You don't see the economy rolling over, especially this time. You know, we came into 2022, you know, the consumer had well over a trillion dollars of excess savings. You know, and, and when you look at an employment report 10 months into a tightening cycle with that kind of kind of momentum in the economy from all that, you know, that accumulated savings, it shouldn't surprise anybody that we haven't rolled over yet, but it's just going to take some time. So, you know, when we look at interest rates or particularly when we look at things like credit spreads, like, you know, high yield trading at 390 over treasuries. And if you exclude kind of the distressed part of that market, high yield bonds only offer a yield premium of about 3% over treasuries, which I will tell you and, you know, the listeners, that's pretty, that's, that's not a lot of uh, compensation. That's what we call, that's pretty tight. Uh, it's certainly not indicative of, uh, of the risk of entering recession. So to my first point, it just seems like the market wants to kind of a, a rush to judgment. Uh, on what this monetary tightening cycle has done uh, or has not done. And I think, you know, we would kind of caution everyone to be patient because, uh, you know, monetary tightening is long and variable, and we think we'll see the impact of it later this year. Okay, we both get duration. It's just like how long is the instrument, right? Can mm-hmm. you explain to me, give me the real stupid person, me being the stupid person, explanation of convexity in the bond market? <laughs> oh, that's the, that, that, that's your change of, of duration. Let, let me... Let me give you a, an easy like example. First derivative Picture, bond you know, math. No, no, it's, yeah, I'm not trying yeah, to go. Tom Keen out on you. I'm you just did. I, you I pulled a Tom Keen. Yeah, we're going to nerd out. You're, you're, I, I warn you, your your uh, your rating's going to plummet here. But let's let's do it. So, <laughs> you're, you're, the, you're, believe you're me, when we it. started, they plummeted. Here we go. You got a mortgage, right? And you have an option. You can either pay that forever, you know, you can, or you can refinance it when interest rates drop, right? And that means, if you think about that from a, uh, the timing of all the cash flow that you're paying, it can shift. It can get really short or it can shift out really long, depending upon what you want to do with your prepayment option. Now picture a bond backed by a thousand of those mortgages. What happens is everybody's got a 3% mortgage. You enter a year like 2022 when interest rates sell off and get much, much higher. Interest rates, you know, mortgage rates go to 6 or 7%. Most homeowners are going to look at that and say, you know what, I love my home, I love my school district, this is a great place, I don't want to move and pay 6% instead of 3%, so I think I'll sit here for the next 30 years, which means the bond backed by a 1,000 of those decisions just went from being a three-year bond to a seven-year bond. And I will tell you, when you have a seven-year bond, its price goes down a lot more 
when rates rise in a three-year bond. And so that's what happened to the mortgage market last year. And that's actually why it's one of the cheaper areas of the market. It extended. The price performance uh, was very poor. Um, and a lot of investors fled that market, which made it cheap, which is why it's one of the few places we actually have, uh, let's say, a, a higher exposure than other areas because it looks cheap because of that extension of duration, which is negative convexity. Did that answer your question, John Tucker? Yeah, it does. It's, it also, I guess, explains that it's kind of different on the way up and from the way down. There's a different dynamic in place, I guess. First derivative bond math. Right here on Bloomberg Radio, Bloomberg Market. For those of you uh, still listening. Yeah, for those of you Brian, who... <laughs> thank you for doing it. No, that was great. No, I, it really I was. That. Brian Whalen, Co-Chief Investment Officer and Generalist Portfolio Manager with TCW Investment Management. We thank you, as always. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.